The first nationally televised presidential debate took place in 1960. The debate took place between Vice President Richard Nixon and Senator John F. Kennedy. The debate was watched by 70 million Americans, and this televised debate helped make politics an electronic spectator sport. It gave voters their first chance to see presidential candidates. It gave voters a chance to form an opinion about these candidates based on their looks, their voice, as well as their performance and their platform. Going into the debate, Nixon was the favorite not only to win the debate, but to win the election. He was far more experienced than the younger Kennedy, and he had already won several key debates, proving himself in a variety of ways. But when Nixon arrived at the television studio, he looked ill. He had been suffering with a nagging knee injury, and he limped into the studio in considerable pain. And despite his sickly appearance, Nixon refused to wear the stage makeup that was offered. But Kennedy gladly accepted it. The result was that Kennedy looked healthy, put together, and robust on television, but Nixon looked pale, unkempt, and worn down. It is widely held that their appearance made a big difference, not only in the outcome of the debate, but in the outcome of that election. And this is why. Those who watched the debate on television largely attributed the win to Kennedy. But those who listened to the debate on radio largely attributed the win to Nixon. So before this TV appearance, Nixon was leading in the polls. But after this appearance, Kennedy pulled even and even passed Nixon. As Marshall McLuhan warned us a generation ago, the medium is the message. Image trumps ideas. Style beats substance. And this is true not only in America and in American politics and culture, it was also true in Israel as well. Let me show you what I mean. Over the past two weeks, we have seen that Israel was a total mess Spiritually, culturally, politically. Everyone did what seemed right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel at the time. Actually, God was the king over Israel, but he was rejected by his people who always resisted the Holy Spirit. And the Lord, who never forces anyone to do anything against their will or to do what they do not want to do, simply gave the people what they wanted. And here's how. He left them to their own vices and devices. And more than that, he left them altogether. Ichabod, the glory has departed. The Lord left Israel alone. And in this tragic story, we see that apostasy and anarchy go hand in hand. We also see the results of those two things. Because after a couple of decades without the Lord, the people began to cry out to the Lord in their suffering. And as usual, they returned to the Lord, penitent, hat in hand, 
They returned with all their hearts, the scripture says, and they put away their false gods. And the Lord graciously delivered them from their enemies and restored their peace and prosperity again. And once again, the cycle of apostasy was broken. The thing that should not get lost in these stories is that repentance from sin always brings refreshment from the Savior. As often as we repent, as often as we return, the Lord is gracious to grant refreshment to us. And so if the story ended right there, we would say, oh, well, all's right in the world again. Israel is doing just fine, right? Wrong. First Samuel tells us the story that no sooner did the Lord receive his prodigal people back into his arms again, and they started pushing away and demanding a real king. Why? We, because historically they had tried a variety of religions and those new religions did not work. So perhaps now a new approach, different politics will help us. This has been our problem all along. And so the elders and the people felt that a change was due. They looked at Samuel, the prophet, and they saw his ancient ways and considered that they were outdated and outmoded. It was time for a fresh face, a new norm, a relevant ruler, a powerful prince. Yes, this is what we need. And so the elders called Samuel to a meeting. And they dismissed him and then dismissed the Lord. And they dismissed them both by demanding a human king. A visible king, a warrior king, a king like all the other nations. Like all the nations. Like all the nations. I've been in ministry long enough to know what that sort of thing means. And so have you. You know what they meant. We don't want to be different from other nations anymore. What's so wrong with fitting in and not standing out? Show me one Bible verse that says we can't have a human king. Everybody else is doing it, so why can't we? We're tired of looking like the weirdos. Why can't we just be normal? Show me one Bible verse that says we can only have God as king. We can be like the world politically as long as we still worship God spiritually, right? Well, the elders made it clear that deep down inside, the Israelites no longer wanted to present themselves as living sacrifices to God the king. They wanted to be conformed to this world, not transformed by the renewal of their minds. They still believed that God existed, but they didn't believe that God was essential. God could be their mascot, but not their master. He could be their servant, but not their sovereign. So they politicized the faith and secularized their life. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it is familiar. It sounds an awful lot like American evangelicalism in our day. And it doesn't matter to me whether you're coming from the right, left, or the middle. We see the same thing happening in our day. 
In the past, American evangelicals worked to Christianize America with the gospel. But what are they doing now? They're Americanizing Christianity with a bunch of gobbledygook. Divine mission is set aside for manifest destiny. The faith now comes wrapped in a flag. Israel was not the only people under God to politicize the faith and secularize their life. Samuel the prophet was jealous for the Lord, and he was utterly disgusted by all of this, as am I and as you should be as well. He knew that all of this meant the rejection of God as king, and it meant a return to Egyptian ways. You see, Israel never quite got over her love affair with Pharaoh and Egypt. But the Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you. Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you. And it's at that moment I go, What? Why? And the Lord says, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The Lord is just going to let them get away with this. He's going to give them their way. And on one hand, this is totally surprising. But on the other hand, it's not surprising at all. As we've seen many times before, the Lord often gives people exactly what they want. If they really, really, really want it. If they keep nagging and they're persistent, he gives them what they want, no matter how wrong or bad it is. He is compassionate and faithful He is not forceful and coercive. But even as he gives people what they want, he sends his people on their way with a fair warning. He tells Samuel, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel has to stand in front of the people and give them a whole lot of bad news, things that they really don't want to hear. They might know all of it is true. They might know that this is what kings do, but they don't care. Samuel stands up and says, I got to warn you about all the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will do far worse to you than make you like all the nations and fight your battles. He will totally centralize the government and utterly militarize the nation." He will press you into service and tax you into submission. He will make your sons and daughters share their goods and resources with the state and then make them dependent on the state. He will establish a military industrial complex in Israel. And in exchange for peace and prosperity, you will be required to give this king more and more power. National security will come at the high cost of personal liberty. Since you want to act like Egyptians and set up your own Pharaoh, have it your way. But mark my words, when things fall apart and you are crushed under the burden of the state, don't come crying to me. Weep and wail on the ash heap of your political nightmare and spiritual ruins. And don't ever forget, but always meditate on this, that you got what you wanted despite all of God's warnings. 
That's my paraphrase of what Samuel said to Israel. The more things change, the more they remain the same. About 60 years ago, President Eisenhower delivered his farewell speech to the American people. And in that speech, he conveyed the same kinds of warnings as the prophet Samuel did. Ike said, We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government must avoid the impulse to live for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. Some of us are the grandchildren that he spoke of or the great-grandchildren that he spoke of. And unfortunately... As you can see so easily all around you, his warnings fell on deaf ears in America. Just as Samuel's warnings fell on stubborn hearts in Israel. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Instead, they doubled down on demanding a king that would make them like all the nations. That would judge them and go out before them and fight their battles. So the Lord said to Samuel, give them what they want, obey their voice and make them a king. And so with the help of God's providence, Samuel went out and he found a young man who came from a wealthy family. Unlike Samuel, he was young, not old. He was just taking off in life, not winding down. He had a bright future, not a dim past. And the scriptures Bluntly and honestly tell us there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than Saul. When he stood among the people, he was head and shoulders above everyone else. There was none like him among all the people. He was everything the people wanted. He was someone they could look up to and someone they could be proud of. He was the kind of man they could follow. Samuel anointed him with oil. He became the Messiah, the Christ of the people. He was made king. And when Samuel presented this king to the people, all the people shouted, Long live the king! And thus God gave them over to the desires and demands of their own hearts. He gave them a human king made in their own image and likeness. So the people got the king they wanted, but not the king they needed. Now, do you know what the absolute worst part of this story is? It might not be what you think. It's not the king's power grab. It's not his oppressive economic policy. It's not his military-industrial complex. 
It's not the loss of freedom. It's not even the weird mixture of politics and religion. All of those things are bad in their own ways. But the absolute worst part of the story is what the Lord God says in his own words in 1 Samuel 10, 17 to 19. The Lord God looks at his people and says, I brought Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. I saved you from the hands of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And the anger and the grief in God's voice is palpable, visceral. After all I've done, this is the thanks I get. And then Samuel chimes in and adds, But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. It's like the people of Israel were saying to God, you are weak and we have outgrown you and we don't even need you anymore. We got this. Just give us the right king. We've seen Israel reject God in various ways before. But this is the first time that they flat out rejected God as their king. And sadly, it will not be the last. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we see Israel reject God over and over and over again. This story sets the stage for Israel's ultimate rejection of the king of glory. And here's how. Israel rejoiced over a king who would oppress them and cause them distress. Yet they rejected the king who had heard their cries and acted to save them on countless occasions. They rejoiced over a king who was tall, dark, and handsome. And yet they rejected the king who had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. They rejoiced over a king who would lead them to forge weapons and fight wars. And yet they rejected the king who promised them plowshares, peace, and prosperity. They rejoiced over a wealthy king who would tax them into poverty. And yet they rejected the king who would become poor in order to make them rich. They rejoiced over a king who would reject God with his own sacrifices, and yet they rejected the king who would rejoice over them with singing. You see, the God they rejected as king had done something that never crossed their minds, never appeared in the imaginations of their hearts. This king had issued a top-secret decree before the foundation of the world. In the mystery of his wisdom, this king planned to do what no king would ever dream of doing, what no other king dared to do. This king, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he planned to empty himself by taking the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he planned to humble himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. This king was despised and rejected because of all he suffered. He became one as whom men hide their faces from. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Even his human form was utterly dehumanized by what he suffered due to all the abuse and mistreatment of his body and the suffering of his soul. And this was astonishing not only to Israel but to all the nations as they considered what this king had subjected him to. And the question arises, why in the world would a king subject himself to such humiliation and suffer all of these things? It is because this king was anointed to save his people from their enemies. This king came to fight our battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil. This king came into the world to save sinners. And he accomplished this salvation Not by power and glory, but by weakness and shame. Not by sparing his own life, but by sharing his life with us. By sacrificing himself for our sake. And as a result of this suffering and this sacrifice, God highly exalted this king to the highest place and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow And every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And every mouth shout, long live the King. Long live the King. Long live the King. To the glory of God the Father. The apostles tell us that neither the devil nor any of the rulers of this world understood this secret mystery. For if they had, they would not have crucified the King of glory. They would not have despised and rejected him. And yet, in their ignorance, in their folly, that is precisely what they did. Israel despised and rejected this king and delivered him up according to the horizon of God's purpose and foreknowledge. And they crucified and killed him. Israel did what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. And if you wonder at the mystery of of it all, keep in mind that our God draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And if you doubt that for a moment, if you don't believe me, just look at the cross. What Israel intended for evil, God intended for good, for the salvation of sinners and for the life of the world. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is no mere carpenter. Jesus is no mere life coach or guru. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God, the King of Kings. You owe him your allegiance. You owe him your life, body and soul, heart and mind. He deserves it all. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray.